Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Take your Bibles and make your way over to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. We see that our Heavenly Father knows best. I want to begin this morning with ten reasons it's good to be a man. Ten reasons it's good to be a man. Number one, you never need to ask for directions because you're never lost. So you say. Number nine, you can go to the bathroom without a support group. Number Eight, if someone forgets to invite you to something, he can still be your friend. Number seven reason it's good to be a man. You can drop by to see a friend without bringing a little gift. Number six, if another guy shows up at the same party in the same outfit, you might just become lifelong buddies. (laughs) Number five, you can do your nails with a pocket knife. (laughs) Number four, there's always a game on somewhere. Number third reason it's good to be a man. Your pals can be trusted never to trap you with, so notice anything different? Number two, if something's mechanically doesn't work, you can bash it with a hammer and throw it across the room. And the number one reason it's good to be a man, one wallet, one pair of shoes, one color, all seasons. (laughs) It is good to be a man. But... In my opinion, the best thing about being a man is being able to be a dad. And the best thing about being a dad is the awesome influence that we can have on our children. Let me share some statistics with you. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. Seventy-one percent of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Seventy-five percent of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. Eighty-five percent, excuse me, seventy percent 
of juveniles and state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. Eighty-five percent of all youth sitting in prisons grew up in fatherless homes. Now, these statistics simply bear out what our Heavenly Father said through the Apostle Paul over 2,000 years ago in his letter to the Ephesians, as we read in chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Let me ask you to stand in respect for the Word of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You may be seated. It is so crucial that fathers be involved with their families that God has packed this passage with several commands. Obey is a command. Honor is a command. Do not provoke is a command. Bring them up is a command by God. Men, you will have a tremendous impact on your children. That fact is settled. The only question is, what kind of impact will you have? Will it be a good impact, or will it be a bad impact? Because you will have an impact. We saw that. Being absent is an impact either emotionally or physically. These statistics are somewhat devastating to me to realize how disadvantaged a child is that doesn't have a father that is actively involved in their life. If you want to have a good impact, then follow the Heavenly Father's advice that we see in our passage today. And there are basically... Three truths that we need to see today. First, we're not to, to provoke our children to anger, but we're to bring, nurture them and nourish them. Second truth, we're to nourish and nurture them by disciplining them. And thirdly, we are to nurture and nourish them by giving them instruction. Those are the three truths. First, fathers don't force feed your children Nurture them. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This means don't cause your children needless anger. Now, they're going to get upset with you sometimes. They're going to get angry with you when you start laying down the law. And that's acceptable and that's understandable. But don't needlessly pick at them and provoke them to anger. Now, Paul doesn't tell us... the. Specifics of this situation, how these fathers in Ephesus were provoking their children to anger. But I think if we'll look at the Roman culture that Paul was writing into, I think we'll get an idea. Now, the Roman culture that was prevalent in Paul's day, in that culture, the father had absolute authority 
in his home. His children and his wife were considered his private property. There was a law called Patria Potestas, which meant the father's power. If a child did something that the father did not approve of, the father could sell that child into slavery, he could disown that child, or he could have that child killed. And no one could say anything against it. He had that absolute power. Seneca, a Roman historian that was contemporary with Paul, describes a Roman policy with regard to unwanted animals. He wrote, We slaughter a fierce ox. We strangle a mad dog. We plunge a knife into a sick cow. Children born weak or deformed, we drown. When a child was born, that child would be brought to his father and placed between his feet. If that father walked away, that child would either be auctioned off or left to die. If he picked that child up, then he became a welcomed member of the family. Paul's writing into this culture, and he's telling these men, don't provoke your children to anger. I think it's a fairly reasonable assumption that the primary way they were provoking their children to anger is they were being overbearing and dictatorial. The father had absolute power. His word was law. And I think most men have the tendency to be overbearing and dictatorial with their children, especially their sons. You're not your child's football coach. You're not your child's drill sergeant. You are their father. Now, I have said before that God really blessed my sons when He gave me daughters first. If I had had boys first, I know I would have killed them. I would have been that hard on them. You know, my philosophy was my way of the highway. I say it, you do it. But those girls came along and they kind of softened Dad's heart. Then by the time those boys came along, I wasn't that drill sergeant anymore. But that is the tendency I think many men have. You say, but i got to lead, right? Yeah. But you know the difference between a leader and a dictator? A dictator demands. He is harsh. A dictator will not allow discussion. A true leader leads through his service, through his example. A dictator says, do what I say, not as I do. Our children are not slaves. They're not employees. We should be firm, but not overbearing or dictatorial. It exasperates them. I think there are some other ways we can exasperate our children as well. A second way we can do it is by giving rules without a relationship. You know, Dad is great at setting rules, but he has no relationship with the kids. All he is is a rule maker. He just comes in and lays down the law. And he has no relationship with the kids. They do not know his heart. All they see is rules that seem oppressive. 
And they get exasperated. They get frustrated. Teenagers rebel against relationships. Little children rebel against rules. But if you see a teenager in rebellion, he's rebelling against some relationship or lack of that relationship in his or her life. So don't exasperate your children by simply being a lawmaker and not one who has a loving relationship with them. If your children understand your heart and know you, then you can lay down the strictest rules that you think are necessary and they will accept those. They might not always obey them, but they will see your heart and they will accept those. Knowing deep down that it's from your heart of love. So we can exasperate our kids by just laying down law and not have a relationship. By being overbearing and dictatorial. There's a third way we can exasperate our kids, provoke them to anger. And that's showing favoritism. I know this family, that the first child was a daughter. And the father had grown up in a home with all boys, and so he didn't know how to relate to girls. And so he basically didn't relate to this daughter. A couple of years later, a boy was born into that home. This guy could relate to his son. It was obvious that his son was his favorite. When they got to be teenagers, this father would come into the living room on a Saturday afternoon when both the daughter and the son would be watching television, and he would look at the son and say, hey, would you like to go to the movies? And say nothing to his daughter. How do you think that made her feel, guys? Showing favoritism will exasperate your children. You remember Joseph and Jacob? Clearly, Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And what did that do to his brothers? They hated him. They wanted to kill him. And eventually sold him into slavery. So, showing favoritism causes you to provoke your children to anger. The fourth way we can exasperate and provoke them to anger. Outburst of anger. Sharp cutting words. Dad loses his temper and he blows up at them and just gives them a barrage of words. Now, they'll have one of two reactions when you do that, Dad, depending on their personality. Either they will just wilt, it will crush them, or they will seethe with anger. And then a day will come when he gets bigger than you, you better watch it. That anger is going to erupt. Another way we exasperate our children is never being satisfied with what they do. They make an A, you want an A+. They get three hits, score two runs, catch six balls. You want to know why they didn't get four hits. You think about that one ball they missed. Not all the balls they caught. And so after the game, you want to sit there and criticize the one thing they did wrong rather than compliment them on what they did right. That exasperates a kid. Man, my dad's never satisfied. I coached my boys a good bit as they were growing up in sports, and I remember one team in particular when they were around 13 and 14. We had this boy on our team 
whose dad was never satisfied. The boy was a pitcher. I remember his dad would get behind the backstop when the boy was pitching. And every time he'd pitch, if he didn't throw a strike, his dad would make a comment. You're letting go too high. Your release is too high. You're not stretching out enough. That boy, every time he would throw a ball, he'd look at his dad to see his reaction. I felt sorry for that boy. One day I was coaching first base. And the boy was up to bat and he hit a ball on the end of his bat. And guys, you know how it just kind of bloops up? Well, it went over the first baseman's head. Too far for him to get to. Too shallow for the right fielder to get to it. A little, but he got on base. And so I was coaching first base. I said, good hit. Way to go. He looked at me and he said, my dad won't think so. Because it wasn't a driving, a drive, straight hit, his dad would get upset. Never satisfied. Let your children know what satisfies you, and when they do it, compliment them. Say, great job! Now, I've confessed before, this is where I had to really work. I'm a perfectionist. I expect perfection. I'm one of those guys you bring an A home. I want to know why you didn't make an A+. But I learned not to say anything. I learned to rejoice in the A. You know, I had this tension, though. You know, I wanted them to be the best they could be. And I didn't want to settle for anything less. And so inside of me, this, it was this part of me that said, you've got to push them. You've got to drive them. You've got to get them to go on and exceed. You know, I think every dad thinks his son's going to make professional sports, right? I mean, you just think that. Well, I was thinking that about my guys, and so, you know, I, I realized, so if you're going to make professional sports, you have got to really, really work at it. I mean, when everybody else is going home, you've got to still be out there hitting ground balls and fielding ground balls and fielding fly balls and running bait. You've got to continue to work at it long after everybody else has quit. I remember seeing a movie by, about Pete Maravich. He was a basketball player. Pistol Pete, he was called. He played for LSU and then in the pros. And in that movie, it showed his dad pushing him and pushing him and pushing him and just driving him and driving him and driving him and never satisfied. And he ended up growing up to hate his dad. And I started thinking, now do all my guys to play professional baseball and hate me or do I want them to love me and just go as far as high school or maybe something I determined guys that's the price I'm not willing to pay for them to be professionals and I'm not saying every professional player hates his dad obviously I'm not saying that but I'm saying if they don't have the drive and you try to drive them to have it they're going to end up hating you because it's your dream you're trying to fulfill in them, not their dream. So don't exasperate your children by being overbearing, by never being satisfied, and lastly, by unkept promises. Well, we're going to go fishing this weekend, son. Weekend comes, son gets up all excited. He runs downstairs. Hey, Mom, where's Dad? Oh, he went off to play golf. How's the son feel? Oh, son, when we get home from, I get home from work tonight, we'll do something fun. Dad gets home from work, son's all excited. Dad, what are we going to do? 
oh man, you know, I'm just so worn out and tired. I, I just don't feel like doing anything, son. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. I hope you didn't have a dad like that. That exasperates kids. They get their hopes up only to have them dashed. Now, Paul's not specific about how fathers are provoking their children to anger. And I think he's not because there are many ways we can do it. So, Dad, the question I want you to ask yourself, am I provoking my children to needless anger? But even better than asking yourself, ask your wife. And ask her to be honest. She can tell you. She can tell you. Ask her if you're showing favoritism. She can tell you that too. Ask her if you're doing these things. Am I not keeping my promises? She'll tell you. Ask your kids. Do I not keep my promises with you? Give me an example. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not cause them needless anger, but nurture and nourish them. Paul says, bring them up. You see the phrase, bring them up? That word really means to nurture. It means to nourish, as you would a young plant. You know, scientists say even plants respond to relationship. They say, talk to your plants, and they'll respond. I haven't come to the place I'm willing to do that yet. (laughs) That's what they say, though. They need regular feeding. They need watering. They need to be placed out in the sun or away from the sun. Nurturing and nourishing implies relationship. If you're going to nurture your children, you've got to have a relationship to them. That means, Dad, you've got to spend time with them. You can't just come home from work and plop yourself in front of the TV and just vegetate out. That means that you have got to come home before they're in the bed and spend some time with them. Too many dads get up and go to work before the kids get up, and they don't get back until the kids are in the bed. You cannot have a relationship with your kids. In that kind of situation. Make time to be with your kids. Somebody did a survey several years ago and found out that the average man, average father, has only ten minutes of conversation with his children a week. Ten minutes. I said, that just doesn't sound right. But then I started thinking about it. I mean, how long does it take to say, be quiet? Turn the television up. Stop fighting. Go to your room. You can say a lot of those in ten minutes, can't you? I'm afraid that's the only conversation too many dads have with their children. I want to read you one Christian father's regret. He found out he had cancer and he was approaching the end of his life. Let me read you what he said. My family's all grown and the kids are all gone. But if I had to do it over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of the children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen more, even to the littlest child. I would be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. 
I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I'd focus on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to little things like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them to God. No man says on his deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Have a relationship. To nurture not only implies relationship, but there must be that tenderness. Be kind to your children. Be tender with them, not harsh and mean-spirited. Don't be one of those dads that when kids think back, Dad was always irritable. He was always angry. He was always in a bad mood. Many of you saw the series years ago called Wonder Years. You remember that? Well, it was written to take place back in the 1950s when I grew up. And those of you that grew up in the 50s like I did, you know, my dad did seem to be in a bad mood a lot. And in that show, his dad was always in a bad mood. And I don't know what it was about those times, but it seems like a lot of dads in those days just kind of walked around in a chronic bad mood. Don't be that way with your children. Be soft and consoling and loving with them. So not only does nurturing imply a relationship and tenderness, but it implies consistency. Now, I never could grow plants because I'm not consistent in watering and caring for them. I have a brown thumb. In one church that I was pastoring, this lady thought it would add warmth to my office to have some plants in my office. So she brought me some plants. Well, those plants died. Why? Because I would forget to water them. I'd water them one week, and then the next week I'd say, well, I guess it's time to water them again. I was not consistent. So if you ever see plants in my office, you know they're artificial. But you know, even artificial plants, you have to care for them. You've got to dust them. Man, those leaves were brown on those plants. They were so dusty. But you've got to be consistent, Dad. You must consistently spend time with your children. You can't just go home after this sermon and spend an hour this week and then not do it the next. You've got to spend time with them on a consistent basis. So fathers, nurture, nourish, bring up your children. And then Paul defines this nurturing. Bring them up, nurture them by giving them direction and correction in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline, in the instruction and correction. Now, I cannot overstate how important a father is to the discipline of the children. Again, I want to say it so it cannot be not heard. Fathers, I cannot overstate how important you are to the discipline of your children. 
Two Harvard University sociologists came up with a test that proved to be 90% correct. And on this test, they would give it to five and six-year-old children. And they could determine with 90% accuracy which of these children would grow up to be delinquents. 90% accurate. And they found out there were four key factors that if they were present, they would keep the children from becoming delinquents. You know what the number one factor was? The father's firm, fair, and consistent discipline. That was it. The father's firm, fair, and consistent discipline. And that bears up with what we saw those statistics at first from fatherless homes. Second, the mother's supervision and companionship during the day. Now, mom has probably more hands-on discipline because she's with the kids more. But dad, it's very important that you be involved in that discipline process. Mom being at home with the kids during the day. How many kids come home to an empty house? Number three. The parents demonstrated affection for each other and for the children. And number four. The family spending time together in activities where all participated. Our Heavenly Father said all of this 2,000 years ago. So bring them up in the, in, in the direction and correction, discipline. You say, well, what direction do I give them? Simple. First, train them to obey your voice. Ephesians 6, one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That commandment's given to children. But hey, who is responsible for a two-year-old obeying their parents? A two-year-old or the parents? The parents. God gives His command to us. We are to see to it that our children obey our voice. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, you teach them to obey your voice. When they don't obey it, you bring consequences to bear. One of the first things you must teach them is to obey your voice. It could save their life. Back when my kids were younger, I think Tiffany was probably about four, three or four, this fellow pastor and I who pastored in the town I did, we were out in the front yard they were over at our house, and we were supposedly looking after the kids. He had a son about the same age. And they were out in the front yard. He and I were talking. All of a sudden, I looked up and saw his son running toward this street that was a very busy highway that we lived on. And I looked at him, and I said, Jackie, look at Todd. And he looked up and said, Todd, stop! And that boy froze right there before he got to the road. Now, that saved his life. Would your kid have stopped like that when you said, Stop! It could save their life. They need to learn to obey your voice. You say, well, preacher, then that's tough because you know they want to do just the opposite. Well, that's when the discipline comes in. Sometimes you have to use that switch. And you've got to start 
early. You start young. The Scripture says in Proverbs 22.15, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will remove it from him. Also again in Proverbs 13.24, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. You have got to take the time to teach your child to obey your voice. When you tell him to him or her to do something and they don't do it, then you need to discipline them. That's the only way they're going to learn. You can't just repeat and threaten and threaten and finally after six times they do it. Everybody's frustrated. Everybody's angry. Just tell them one time and then they don't do it, let them have it. Then the next time they'll learn. They're smart. They're a lot smarter than you think. They'll learn. My dad used to say, look, you don't have to be smart to behave. He said, you better make an A in conduct if you don't make it anything else. And you don't have to be smart to behave, do you? You know, my dad had a philosophy of child raising. He raised three preachers. He said, love them and whoop them. And he knew what it was to give a whooping, let me tell you. It's that simple. Love them, discipline them. Susanna, Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, she raised 17 children. And she had these words to say about raising children. The parent who studies to subdue self-will in his child works together with God in the renewing and saving a soul. The parent who indulges it does the devil's work makes religion impractical, salvation unattainable, and does all that in him lies to damn his child, soul, and body forever. That's pretty strong, isn't it? You owe it to your child to bring their will under control. And remember... That's in conjunction with that loving relationship with them. So first, you teach them to obey your voice. Secondly, you train them to honor you and their mother. Now, this will only come when they learn to obey your voice. If they don't obey your voice, they'll never respect you. Why should they? You know, if you don't teach them to obey your voice and you say one thing and they do another, then why would they respect you? You have to earn the respect of your children. And you earn that respect as you teach them to obey your voice. And then they grow up to respect you. So the Bible says, do not provoke your children to anger, but rather nurture and nourish them first by providing discipline. Loving, consistent, fair discipline. And next, Nourish them by providing instruction for them. Fathers, give your children instruction in the Lord. Dad, it's our responsibility to teach our children the things of God. Far too many dads want to leave it to mom. Far too many dads want to make excuses. Well, mom's better with the kids than I am. She knows them better than I do. She's more suited for that. She knows the Bible better than I do. That's not the point. God says we're to do it, guys. And there's something that is intangible but nevertheless true. There's something right and beneficial 
about a dad being the one to teach his children about the things of God. The Bible says the God of our fathers in the Old Testament. I'm afraid if it was in our nation and you went up to people and said, who was the greatest influence in your life spiritually? Many would say, my mom. Or my grandmother. Now, praise God for mothers and grandmothers when dad doesn't step up. But let me tell you, men, the Old Testament speaks of the God of their fathers, not the God of their mothers. Although He was their God. But God's way is for the man to step up and be the spiritual leader in his home and lead his family in the ways of God. Statistics show when dad is a spiritual leader, the rest of the family will follow. The Heavenly Father knows best. You say, well, what's the matter of the instruction? What should I teach him? The Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul wrote to Timothy that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Teach them the Gospel. Teach them how to pray. Teach them how to witness. Teach them how to study the Bible. Teach them how to resist temptation. Teach them how to claim the promises of God. Teach them responsible stewardship. Teach them about giving to God. Teach them the truth and principles of God's Word, dads. And there are many books out there to help you to know how to do this and what to teach. That's the matter you teach the Word. What's the manner of instruction? You start early. Reading the Bible to them. I read the Bible to my boys when they were in the crib. Taking naps. You say, well, they didn't understand anything you were saying. They may not, but their spirit received the Word. And I wanted them to grow up here and their dad read the Word of God. There are many little Bible picture books that you can take with a 11, 12-month-old kid and, and just start showing them pictures and talking about the Bible. As they get older, you can do other things. But you need to be instructing them in the ways of God. There's something right about it. There's something securing about it. To know my dad serves God, walks with God, to see me on my knees praying, for your kids to see you in the Bible, for your kids to know you're a man of biblical convictions, it brings security to their lives. There's something settling about that. But it springs up from your relationship with them. Look in Deuteronomy 7. You shall teach them diligently, and he's talking to the men, to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. What's he talking about? All the time. This is a relationship. They're laying down together, rising up together, walking together, they're sitting together, they're being together. As you build that relationship with your children and you share your heart for God and, and give them a biblical worldview, that's what he's talking about. Nurture and nourish them in the instruction of the Lord. But that means you've got to spend time with them. This guy came home from work as usual, late and worn out, tired in a bad mood. His six-year-old son was waiting as he came in the door. And his six-year-old son said, Dad, how much do you make an hour? 
Well, the guy was already irritated. He said, son, what do you want to know that for? That's none of your business. Oh, dad, please tell me. How much do you make an hour? And his dad said, well, if you must know, $20 an hour. Well, the son's countenance just failed. And then he looked at his dad and said, Dad, can I borrow $10? Oh. He said, oh, the only reason you wanted to know how much I made was so you could ask me for money for some buy some worthless toy that you don't need anyway. Just go up to your room. You go to bed if that's your attitude. And more, the more he thought about it, the angrier he got. But then after about an hour when he had cooled down, he said, well, maybe I was a little hard on him. So he went back up to the opened the guy's bedroom door, and he said, Son, are you awake? He said, Yes, Dad. So he went over and he sat on the bed, and his dad said, Son, you know, I realize I might have been too hard on you. You know, maybe maybe you do need this money for something. So he took out his wallet and he handed him and said, Here, here's $10. Boy, the boy just beamed. And the little boy reached on his pillow and pulled out all this wad of crumbled up dollar bills. But when his dad saw that, he said, what? You asked me for money? You already got money. And the little boy just took his, his $1 wad of bills and began to unfold them and count out to 10. And then he took his dad's 10. And he said, Dad, here's $20. Can I buy an hour of your time? Let's pray. Welcome you, and I'm glad that you have taken the opportunity to listen to a sermon on our internet. And I want you just to know that uh, everybody in the church is not like me. Uh, I have these fellows up here, our leadership team. Uh, this is Filiberto Medina, who is our Hispanic pastor. And our Hispanic congregation meets every Sunday evening at 6.30. This is Paul Kumar. He is our Minister of Community Connections. Uh, and to my left is Mark Baker, who heads up our Reformers Unanimous Ministry, which is a Christian addiction recovery program that meets every Friday night at 7 o'clock. So if you live in the Mableton area, uh, and it doesn't matter what race you're from, it doesn't matter your cultural background, I want you to know you are welcome at Westside Church. This is where everybody is somebody and Jesus is Lord. Hope you'll join us soon. Thank you for being with us for this message. Each week, Dr. Stewart gives practical applications and ways to live out the Word of God. If you would like more information, please take a moment to view our website at wbcfamily.org. That's wbcfamily.org.